0: Great to be with you, and I'm looking forward to talking about probably what is my favorite theme, and that is enjoying God in our times together, starting tonight especially. Um, My understanding about this particular workshop is that it has to do with worship and uh, some of the clusters of issues surrounding its nature in our contemporary society i 'm um, a little bit uneasy with the with the word or the question how to make worship relevant it doesn 't it doesn 't quite suit the way I would ask the question so let me let me try to tell you how I would ask the question and then uh, i 'll talk for maybe half of this time and then we 'll take questions for the other half. I hope that 's the way it works out so if i don 't touch on what you had hoped i I would please make a note and then stand up and ask questions when the time comes for questions. Um, I'm a little troubled at the a contemporary and prevalent notion that, that worship is uh, a part of the service that you do for the preaching and that you should be audience-oriented when you plan it um, rather than God-oriented when you plan it. And I'm sure the people who think audience-oriented don't like that distinction, but that's one of the reasons I'm uneasy with the term relevance. It seems to me that the question ought to be authenticity. Is our worship according to spirit and truth? God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit. And in truth, John 4.23, is it engaging people with the living God? Is that happening? Now, I suppose if it's authentic, if it's in spirit, if it's according to truth, if people are really engaging with the living God, if it's deep, if it's profound, that what is meant by the word relevant will probably be happening. But maybe not, because there are a lot of people who simply are not prepared to worship, they are not ready to worship, they are not going to worship, no matter what you do. Because God hasn't done the work in their heart yet. And to provide them with an atmosphere or music or language that makes them feel good may not be the best thing for them, because that's not necessarily worship. So that's uh, my orienting thought about the topic, and I think what I'd like to do is uh, ponder a little bit with you about the relationship between contemporary worship music and preaching. I'm a preacher. I really don't know much about music. I just know it's big, it's huge, it's relevant, it's what everybody's warring over these days. The worship wars that are out there and how you do your Sunday morning event is a big question. So I won't leave it behind, but I am a preacher mainly and I want to, I frankly believe that the key to worshiping authentically and worshiping in spirit and worshiping in truth and worshiping Engaged with God and deeply and profoundly is going to happen if the
1: pastor is a man who worships
0: profoundly, deeply, authentically, in spirit and in truth. If you have a worshiping pastor, the way I understand worship, it will become an authentic spiritual, truth-driven, deep engagement with God among the people over time. And that isn't to say that the worship is I mean the music is irrelevant or that the leader of the music is irrelevant. It's to say that the the lead pastor will over time shape that. Either by transforming the people who do it by the way he leads and preaches and worships, or by seeing to it that the right kind of person is put there so that it happens, in accord with his heart, happening. So, let me raise these questions, or let me begin this way. It seems to me, and you tell me in our question-answer time, whether you see it differently, that in the last 25 years, give or take five years, I'm not sure how to date it, there has been around the world, amazingly, now I've not been everywhere in the world, but at least let's say in the Western world, including South America, North America, Europe, I can't speak too much for Asia, but I think the little I've tasted, same would be true there. There has been an amazing worship awakening in terms of what you would call contemporary worship songs. You can go
1: to London, Sao Paulo, Toronto, Minneapolis, and they're all singing the same
0: songs. It is amazing. Songs, I mean, it's been long enough now, so that some of these are kind of old-fashioned. The contemporary worship songs, songs like Jack Hayford's Majesty, Graham Kendrick's Shine, Jesus Shine, and, and, and a whole array. I mean, there are thousands of these, but probably I could begin right now any one of these songs and you could, without any lyrics, sing them with me. Thou art worthy. Father, I adore you. Open our eyes, Lord. We worship and adore you. Thou, O Lord, art a shield about us. You are Lord, you are Lord, Lord. You are more precious than silver. I worship you, Almighty God. Probably I could begin any one of those if you heard the tune coming out of my mouth and the songs you 'd join in because you 've heard them somewhere, and you 've picked them up they 're simple, there are hundreds of good ones, there are thousands of bad ones. in fact, in fact, some of the the grammatical poetical musical efforts are deplorable okay. a fact which those of us who grew up on the likes of do lord should not exploit <laughs> <laughs> Don't measure the worst of contemporary music over against the best of hymnology and close the case that you should do away with contemporary worship music. Here's what's remarkable about these. I mean, there are many things that are remarkable about this worship awakening around the world. All of those songs that I just mentioned, and that's the tip of the iceberg, are remarkably Godward, are they not? Every one of the ones that I mentioned there are addressed directly to God. They're not sung in the second person or the third person about God. They are sung to God. And therefore, there is something in the lyrics of contemporary worship music, most of them, that force an issue. Namely, the issue of engagement right now in the singing with the living God. I remember growing up in a, in a Southern Baptist church in Greenville, South Carolina where I never really felt like the issue was being forced. John Piper, are you now in this moment engaging in living communion with the living God? Your heart addressing him and feeling certain things toward him, him addressing you in a word and the two of you having a living Dynamic transaction. I just remember, don't remember that issue being forced. Now that may have been my fault as much as anybody else's. But in these worship songs, you are Lord, you are Lord. You're forced to either be a hypocrite or talk
1: to God. You can't have it any other
0: way. You can be a hypocrite or you can be authentically engaging with the living God. Whereas many hymns can be sort of like lectures. They're just sung about God, and, and the issue isn't forced on you that this ought to be sung also to God, at least in your spirit, if not in the grammatical phrasing of the hymn itself. So I think that is a remarkably good thing, that that issue is being forced. Now add to this that the tunes. The melodies, the music of most contemporary worship music is very emotional. That is, it is designed to awaken, quicken, carry, sustain affections. They are not very intellectual. They're not very demanding musically. They're fairly simple but they have a certain kind of emotional framework to them that is intentional and that uh, moves people's affections or emotions. Now, that creates two things in contemporary worship music, it seems to me. One, the mind, by the lyrics, is by and large, in the best of them anyway, brought to focus on God.
1: They are remarkably biblical.
0: Many of the best of them are just straight text from the Bible. Or if you take the song, say, shine Jesus, shine, tell me what passage of Scripture that is exegeting.
1: Anybody remember? It's
0: Philippians 3, straight and simple. It's simply a paraphrase and an exposition and a very good one of Philippians chapter 3. And so are many of them. And so the first thing that happens is they are biblical, the best ones, the ones you ought to be using. And the second thing is that by the music, the heart is stirred, a certain kind of tenderness, devotion, enjoyment, camaraderie in battle, are stirred up in millions of God's average people, if not in the classicists among us. The classicists don't care for them and and uh, don't really like music that tends to be heavily emotional. Uh, Bach is not heavily emotional. He is very intellectual and therefore very profound and touches the heart in a way that you have to work at intellectually to experience, and that's good. There is a place for that kind of demanding, high, cultural, Christian music.
1: But woe to us if we despise the more
0: immediate access to the heart through simpler music that gets at the heart more directly, It can be abused, but it can be used in wonderful ways. So, as we look at this um, worship awakening in contemporary worship songs around the world, it stands out that the content of this is very largely God-centered and God-exalting. In those songs that I mentioned at the beginning, he is Lord He is risen, he is majestic, he is mighty, he is holy, he has conquered the power of death, he's a shield, he's our glory, he's the lifter of our heads, he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, he's Emmanuel, he's great, he's wonderful, he's a rock, he's a fortress, he's a deliverer, he's a coming king, he's a redeemer, he's the name above all names, he's the lamb of God, Messiah, the holy one, he is our God and our God reigns. You cannot miss, unless you're absolutely prejudiced, that this music awakening is radically God-centered in the best of it. It is unmistakable. Whatever you think of the drums, (laughs) whatever you think of the bass and the amplification and the t-shirts and the blue jeans and the wires and microphones, dread everywhere, whatever you think of all that, You have to admit, this music, by and large, is very Godward. It is very Godward. The character of God, the power of God, the mercy of God, the authority of God, and especially the intimacy of God as Father is struck over and over again in contemporary worship music at its best. So the hoped-for effect through music and lyrics, is an authentic engagement with God, genuine, real, spiritual engagement. It's very hard for, for some of us in our generation. I think I, I find myself, I'm the oldest baby boomer in the world. <laughs> baby boomers are from 46 to 65. I was born January 11, 46. Tell me, in this room, if you were born between January 1st and January 11, 1946. Raise your hand. One, two, three. So I'm the fourth oldest baby boomer in the room. Okay. Now we baby boomers, I think, are sort of, we're, we're people with a foot in two worlds. At least I am. Uh, I, they say if you remember what happened in the sixties, you weren't there. <laughs> Which means your brain is not fried on drugs. I do remember what happened in the 60s, and so I I wasn't there. and, And not having been there, that is, I was a believer and didn't get sucked into a lot of the sexual craziness and so on. But that means I really do have a foot planted in the historic, glorious hymnology of the church and won't give it up for anything at my church. And I am a child of my culture and a child of my musical age and a child of the ethos of North America, and therefore I find most contemporary music very attractive, frankly. I am very moved by it, and I'm 53 years old, and it I, I unashamedly lift my hands in worship and sing to the best of it with the best of the young people. And so um, I think that uh, it's not bad to be that way. But I feel for those who don't have a foot in the contemporary world because it's very hard for a person over 53, 4, 5 to emotionally engage with God through certain uh, mediums of music. And I simply empathize very easily with that because there is some of it that I just can't connect with either. You know, the, the hardest rock contemporary Christian music does just, I don't listen to it. And I don't have it on Sunday morning in my church. It's just way out on the periphery. And I don't go on a crusade against it like some do, because my guess is that at the level of evangelism, you know, if you go to Tokyo today, I have a missionary who wants to see God break loose in Japan. And he goes. We have a, a wonderful movement of God in our churches in Japan. I, I think uh, the Rengo. and uh Nevertheless, these churches are all fairly small and very traditional, and the worship is very low-key. And um, if you go to the center of Tokyo on a night when they're having a concert and look on the side of a building that's about 20 stories tall with a blank side and see the bands being laser-projected, on the side of the building, 20 stories tall, and 100,000 young people uh, driving to the loudest a most amazingly gut-wrenching music you can imagine, how are they to be reached? Now, I don't think you do everything in evangelism in imitation of the world. But I do think That in order to get a hearing, Paul did write 1 Corinthians 9 for a reason. I become all things to all men that I might win some. So I just, I just am so eager not to be negative on issues that just might be used of God, though I find myself unable to connect with God through certain ones. And I only say that to be empathetic with those who can't connect with the music I can connect with. And that's what's creating our problems, isn't it, on Sunday mornings? We've got lots of people all over the range, and how do we then create authentic worship for them? Now, Here's the problem I want to raise in relation to preaching in this worship awakening. It seems to me that a remarkable fact is that while worship has been moving in the last 25 years Godward in its lyrics and intensely affectionate toward God in its music, preaching has been going the
1: other direction.
0: While the worship songs have moved Godward, preaching has moved manward. While the worship songs focus on our attention, focus our attention again and again on the character of God, his great works, preaching is focusing us on contemporary issues, personal problems, relationships. Worship songs lift us into the presence of God. Preaching tends to give advice on how to get along better on earth. So however you say it, there is a remarkable difference. I don't know anybody today who would say there has been a great preaching awakening in the last 25 years with most of the preaching today being Godward, God-exalting, God-magnifying, God-centered, God-saturated. I don't know of anybody who would assess the situation like that in the Western world. If that's true in your fellowship,
1: you just tell me afterwards and I'll change my
0: tune. At least here I will. But a great resurgence of God-centeredness and the spirit of transcendence and profound Godwardness is not what I would say about contemporary preaching alongside this music. Rather, it seems to me that what we have is relational anecdotal, humorous, casual, laid back, absorbed with human need, fixed on relational dynamics, heavily saturated with psychological categories, strategies for emotional healing, and so on, is characterizing the contemporary preaching of the evangelical church. And what what I want to ask is, why the difference? How do you explain this? What's how can this happen? And they even happen in the same service. I mean, they almost always happen in the same service. You have this 20 or 30 minutes of songs that are, are biblical, Godward, textual, emotionally engaged at their best anyway. And then comes a pastor who instead of doing preaching like that, does more Relationally oriented, psychology oriented, problem oriented, healing oriented, m- massaging of people to try to help them feel better when they leave this morning than when they came in. What is the explanation for that? Here's a, here's a go at it.
1: Um,
0: I think the, The lyrics of Godwardness have a great advantage. The pastor says to himself, those lyrics have the great advantage of being accompanied by music. And the music is good. It's emotionally enlivening or moving. And therefore, now here's the negative way to put it. It makes the
1: lyrics palatable. The lyrics
0: themselves would not carry the emotion, Godward. But with the music, the emotions are awakened and carried Godward with the lyrics that are Godward.
1: Now the, the,
0: the positive way to say, it, that's negative. The music makes palatable, God-centered lyrics for churches that are not God-centered. But they like the music, and so they'll tolerate the lyrics. That's a very negative spin on this. Let me put a different one on it altogether. The music, as music has always functioned at its best, I think especially in the Psalms as you read it, the music does something to our hearts, awakens them, Sensitizes them, tenderizes them, ennobles them, fires them, and then the words come in and that affection that's been awakened takes that truth and carries it Godward so that the two come together not in competition, not the music simply making the words palatable, but the music awakening us so that we can feel the real force of the lyrics. It's happened to me often in worship, where I will come and I'm fairly flat emotionally. And if you were to ask me, do you love God, John, with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and all your mind this morning, I would say, all of it?
1: Maybe 40%? And then the music starts.
0: and You begin to listen. And something touches you. And then as you look on the overhead or on your sheet and you see some glorious statement of God's attribute or some tender, wonderful statement out of the Bible that a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those. And the, the song is saying uh, he loves you and the words are saying he loves you. And suddenly you feel that he loves you and the lyrics are taking you into heaven. And the music has helped. It hasn't replaced truth. It has given a vehicle for truth. Now, the pastor is sitting there experiencing this and listening to it and knowing that he's going to have his turn in about 20 minutes. And there's not
1: going to be any music while he's preaching. I really do believe this is a very big issue. He's thinking, I
0: would love for this to happen when I preach. I want to speak truth from the Bible, and I want to see people come alive to that truth. I want to see their hearts soar Godward on that truth. I want to see tears flowing down their faces when I talk about repentance. I want to see them mobilized with all power in boldness when I talk about God's relevance for the
1: world. And there's not going to be any music to help me waken their affections. So what does he do
0: at this point? He wants the same thing to happen, and a fateful choice is made by thousands of passers at this point. I think he concludes, if I would just take a certain doctrine of God, his sovereignty, his grace, his love, his justice, his wisdom,
1: and unfold it exegetically and Exposition. I wouldn't get the same effect in my people as when they sing. So,
0: what does he do? I think many pastors at that point say, I want that effect. That's a powerful effect. So, I will find the places in my people's lives where their emotions are already running high.
1: And I will hook into that. Divorce, drugs, parenting and brokenhearted parents, anger, the big issue in marriage and personal life, success in business,
0: depression, tension in relationships. Knowing this is where his people live, knowing this is their pain, Knowing this is their joy, he says, if I can plant my sermon there and water it with enough anecdotes, enough empathetic talk so they know I live there too, I can hold their attention, I can bring tears to their eyes, and I can make them feel like I care about them and like there's something
1: relevant in the Bible for their needs. The pain in marriage, anguish of a wayward teenager, stress at work,
0: power of sexual temptation, breakdown of community, woundedness from past abuses, absence of intimacy of all kinds. The preacher knows these things will touch people.
1: And so, it
0: isn't primarily to accomplish something different than the first half of the service, that he makes his fateful choice to be problem-oriented, pain-oriented, empathy-oriented, rather than God-oriented. It's because he wants to bring about the same thing. Now, positively, you could say to that, and we should say something positive about it first, Well, that's good to touch people where they are. Preaching that just talks about things that don't ever touch people where they are will not produce biblical fruit. Preaching is a connecting
1: with people. But uh, negatively, I would say, um, this. I think that the reason Pastors shy away from doctrinal preaching and move toward empathetic, relational, psychologically oriented, helpful, advice kind of preaching is because um, they themselves are not moved by doctrine. Here's the, here's what I'm really going to, here's my thesis. I think that in order for
0: preaching to do what it ought to do, which is exactly the same thing as what happened in the first half of the worship service, is that the preacher has to make his own
1: music. I mean the music of the soul. I call it
0: expository exaltation. That's my name for preaching. If you said, give us a definition of preaching, I would say it's expository exaltation. That's E-X-U-L, not A-L. E-X-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N. Which means that the preacher as he studies, as he meditates, as he prays over a vision of God that he sees in the text, must plead with the living God to land on him in such a way that there is a song born in his soul that makes music over this doctrine. So that when he stands to speak of this glorious truth about God, there will be not a, a tune that has that you could play on a violin or on a piano, but rather there will be a spiritual music that his people will hear and the effect of that music in the pastor's soul will have the same effect as the keyboard and the guitars and the drums for the Godward lyrics of the song that's my thesis that in order for the second half of the worship service to be worshipped the word has to come
1: worshipping the word must come out
0: of the preacher's mouth worshipping so I never talk about the worship half of the service and the preaching half of the service fie on that right there are two halves to this worship service, a song half, more than song, prayer, perhaps it's responsive readings, other things, but there's the, the music oriented half and the preaching oriented half, and both of them are exaltation. Or, they're not. And when they're not, by and large, the preacher feels Look, if I can't make music for these people, and I can't, I know doctrine is going to be dry as dust, because it's just going to sound like a bunch of intellectual stuff, and therefore I'm really not, I'm going to go for the music that's already being made in their lives, either the happy music or the sad music, and I'm just going to talk about the problems where they already feel deep feelings, and when I talk about what they feel as deep feelings already about their problems, they'll at least feel like I know where they are, they'll smile, they'll relax, there'll be tears on their faces, you'll be able to connect with them, you'll get some good feedback, and I'll keep my job, and people will be happy, the church may grow, the church may grow, because everybody wants you to empathize with
1: their feelings, and But that's not worship, and that's not
0: preaching. That's not preaching. Now, please, I know some of you are going to right now respond negatively to this, so let me try to rescue you for a minute. Um, you're going to say in yourself, look, don't, don't, don't play those off against each other. Don't, don't say you've got to only talk about doctrine in order to do right kind of preaching or get down with people where they are to do bad kind of preaching. Don't split those up, and I hear you. Okay, I hear you. Here's the way I want to put the two together. Yes, 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 the preacher must take divorce up, must take up drugs, must take up kids, must take up stresses at work, must take up intimacy issues, must take up anger. Yes, but my plea is that he take them all the way up, all the way up up into God, up into Scripture, up into where God is so that the realities of God and the realities of heaven and the realities of history and redemptive history come to bear on them. And the people feel like, yes, he began, he, he heard me, he knows my pain, and I find myself being drawn out of this problem up into a reality and a level of being that I didn't know when I came in here, I wouldn't have articulated my problem the way he is now articulating my problem vis-a-vis the justice of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the wisdom of God, the promises of God, the providence of God. I didn't see my problems in relation to all these things. And now I see my life in a totally different perspective. That's what preaching's for. You don't, come down and stay down and just give the kinds of tips that they can get in the newspaper on Monday morning. They don't need any more tips. Preaching is to be a weighty matter whereby the reality of God mediated through Scripture and through a man is brought to bear on all of life, and then they are drawn up into God. At least I think preaching at its best is always Godward preaching. It's always bringing things to bear in relation to God or God to bear in relation to things. Everybody, if if, if people took a little survey in your church and they said, what is the most common theme? What's the most common emphasis in your pastor's preaching? Now, we won't take a survey here, but I sure hope what my people say is God or the glory of God, or the grace of God, or something like that. I hope they they don't say the pain of the people or the hurts of the people or whatever. I hope they say the the recurrent theme, like a broken record in this church, is God is great. God is glorious. God is worthy. God is all-sufficient. God is what we're made for. That's what I hope they'll they'll say, because I really believe our people are starving for the greatness of God. And they don't know that's the diagnosis of their problem. They don't know that's the diagnosis. Hardly anything they look at on television, let's say nothing they look at on television, is communicating the real diagnosis of their problem and the real remedy of their problem. So if you do an audience-oriented preaching, you, as a doctor, surrender your whole medical training and let people who don't know their disease tell you their symptoms and you start massaging their symptoms and they don't even understand what their problems are. They think they've got a problem with a husband who doesn't fulfill their expectations of a wife. And really the problem is they've never learned to be content in God so that they can respond with good to evil and win their spouse over after 20 years of patience and love. Until God becomes our portion, radically, profoundly, deeply, unshakably our portion,
1: we can't do good marriage. Divorce is all about God. It's all about God. So is parenting all about God? How are you going to survive the teenage years without God? I got on the plane the other day flying to Pittsburgh and I just cried. Because of a conversation I'd had with one of my kids as he took me to the airport and where he is. And I just wept. And I got—I was going to go speak three times in Pittsburgh. I said, I don't feel like I can. I don't want to preach. I just want to cry.
0: If I didn't have God at that moment to say, I can handle this. I can do this. I've done this before. I can do it for you right now in the next two days. I can do it for him in the next 70 years. I can do this, and I am God. And then I thought through the issues that we're talking about. I won't get any detail, but I just thought through the issues a little bit about how hard it's been for this boy right now to believe because he can't see God. You know, the thought that landed on me was, he can see me. He can see me, and I will be God. I will be God for this boy. Meaning, I will be so satisfied with God that I will not get angry with him when he lets me down, mainly. I will come back to him again and again. I will get in his face again and again, and I will say, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I will take you out to breakfast when you don't want to go out to breakfast, and I will say, I'm walking through this with you. I will not let you go. I'm through this with you. I'm there with you. I will be God. I will be the grace of God for you. If you can't see God, you can see me, and this is the way God is. It's a God issue whether your kids make it through the teenage years and whether you make it with them or whether you just explode every time they do something crazy and off the wall and drive them away and drive them into their emotions where they can no longer come to you ever again with what they're feeling because all they get from you is anger and explosions That's a God issue in your life. That's a God issue. Are you content in God? I had to ask the question afresh, and I ask it a lot. If I lose my boys, I've got five kids, four boys
1: and a girl. If I lose my kids to hell, can I be content in God forever? You've got to answer that question, yes. Or you cannot parent them as you ought. And believe me, that's a gut-wrenching, tear-jerking, horrific question to answer. If I lose them all for eternity and have God loving me, will I be happy in heaven forever with god
0: once god is your portion and you don't have to have your children you will probably not get angry with them as quickly because most of our anger is flowing from you're letting me down you make your life hard for me you're about to jeopardize my ministry You're making me emotionally unhappy, you're wrecking this family. It's not concern for them.
1: You gotta let them go, and then you can
0: be godlike in your contentment and your restfulness as they say things to you, as they do things to their mom, as they do stuff. That only the patience of God can come back to again and again. Well, I didn't mean to get off on parenting here. What am I doing? I've lost my place. I'm preaching a second sermon, but I can tell from your attentiveness that we all live in the same place, don't we? What should I do here? Let me see how to wind this up. Uh, I gave you my main point. (laughs) So you're not going to miss that. Namely, that... The reason preaching has gone in another direction besides the godwardness of worship is because the preachers are making a fateful choice that in order to produce the kind of uh, feedback they want and do the relational thing mainly, not the doctrinal godward thing mainly. And my antidote to that mistake is to say, yes, you can do both, because if you will make music over the doctrine, the same effect will happen. And therefore, the real bottom line answer for, now back to the topic I was given, relevance in worship and authenticity in worship is the authenticity of the pastor in his preaching. I really believe that if you make music over the glory of God, if you make music over substitutionary atonement, if you make music over the grace of God in the salvation of sinners, if you make music over heaven, if you make horrible dirges over hell, if tears flow because of the music in your heart, they will sing with you as you preach, and the same effect will be happening at that moment as happened in the first moment, and this whole service will start to feel like one thing, and it will be authentic and real, and pr- I'm willing to be a question about anything at our church or in my life or anything you've heard that stirs up questions. Uh, I'll just say I don't know if I don't know the answer, but go ahead. Let's. Uh, you can come to a mic if that would make it easier so everybody can hear. Go ahead,
2: let's do it. Lester Laird from the Filipino Church. I am so thankful, John, for this emphasis. God bless you. Thank you. We need it. Thank you so very
1: much.
3: You're welcome. Kent Anderson from Parkland, also from NBTC. I want to thank you as well. I'm a teacher, I'm a homiletician, teacher of preachers, mm. and, uh, I have been striving for a while to encourage the kind of integration that you're talking about between exposition and exaltation, between text orientation and uh, audience orientation, uh, explanation and experience. Uh, I think a lot of us have lost faith in preaching. I've heard people say that uh, that preaching is not where it's really happening today. It's happening in small groups. It's happening in worship. Uh, I don't believe that. Well, I believe it's happening there, but I believe it can happen in preaching as well. I think one of the problems, that that I and I perceive you talking about this a little bit as well, I'd like your comment. I think one of the problems is we have moved in worship and discovered new method that is creative, that is contemporary, that speaks to uh, current issues and hearts. And we haven't done the same thing with preaching. We're using models and methods that are 30, 40 years old, and uh, I know that it's not all about form and method. I know it's primarily about, as you're saying, worship. But I think one thing that could help is if we learn to think more creatively about our method and form of approach. Uh, but I want to thank you again. I'd, I'd like to make that available to my students. I think that was great. Well,
0: thank you very much. Let me just make a comment about creativity in various ways. I, I uh, say amen to what you just said. I am probably for those of you who are are moving in the direction of of arts in the worship service and so on like drama and so on you're going to find me stodgy at that point i'm afraid because um, i really do believe in exposition with all my heart i have not been preaching here this is not i this is not this is a lecture on worship though it's preachy <laughs> I haven't exposited a a text here. I really believe in exposition. Taking texts, doesn't have to be one text and bring them together, a lot of different ways to do exposition. But I really believe in doing exposition and that um, small groups and Sunday school classes and the body life of the church hangs on the health of the preaching ministry. And they're not at odds with each other. Frankly, I, I, I am committed to speaking to my small group leaders once a month. Every Tuesday, uh, the first Tuesday of the month, I get them together on Sunday night and I bring an uh, inspirational message to all our small group leaders, about 70 of them in our, our church. And I say, I cannot do church without you. Preaching is not the be-all and end-all of the church. You must do one another ministry or you're not a New Testament church. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. I cannot do that on the in the pulpit on Sunday morning, but I can give life to it. I can continually feed it. I can continually energize it by God's anointing exposition and exaltation over truth so that those groups Sunday by Sunday are feeding off the word of God and in corporate worship and Life happens everywhere in a church when it's happening in the message. And I'm a little bit squeamish about thinking that we should think that the, the main problem is finding a new method. And I don't think that's what you were saying necessarily. Like, let's tell more stories or whatever. It's, it's, I don't want to be negative on either side here because I tell stories. but But I think... Authenticity and reality over exposition is the issue. People always say, what do you think is the key? What's the key to preaching? I just come back again and again and I say, reality, reality, reality. You know when a man is standing before you teaching about what he has read about or what he's appropriated profoundly in his own life, with his own kids, with his own marriage, with his own God, with his own worship. And it's reality, it's authenticity. At least baby boomers, we hate inauthenticity. We hate hypocrisy. And I think all humans do, just some of us feel more strongly about it than others. (laughs) And so that's basically the message I'm going to have is that if I were teaching homiletics and I just finished a class. On preaching that I teach at my church with six guys, and I just pled with them, know the word, be faithful to the text, and be radically real. And if you're talking about heaven, soar. And if you're talking about hell, weep. If you're talking about pain, feel pain. And if you're talking about joy, feel joy. And that's supernatural. You can't do that.
2: Go ahead. Sorry, I get carried away. Yes, sir. Max de from Princeton. Thank you for everything you've said. I I agree heartily. And seven years ago when we went to where we are presently, I had to start evaluating some things I was challenged to be open-minded about change or new things or things that was not in my comfort zone musically or otherwise. So I tried to be open-minded to consider these things, and I came to some conclusions that God was doing some things that maybe I wasn't necessarily used to. Hmm. Uh And so in our church, we've had all kinds of music uh, happen uh, with groups coming in or different things. And I've been very open and found it to be a blessing. But the thing that I've found where I've gone different places, maybe you would comment on this aspect of contemporary music. It's not the style or it isn't the instruments. It seems to be the volume that has turned the older generation off a bit. Hmm. The young ones like it loud, but the older ones don't like it so loud, and maybe there's a balance to be achieved where it is more edifying to the older generation that otherwise, you know, they don't like it. Could you comment on that? Oh, yeah, I'd
0: be happy to comment on the
2: volume issue.
0: Um, um, two, two things, maybe, and then we'll wind it up. Uh, one is we got to help train people and here it takes very sensitive pastors and worship leaders of appropriateness of volume and intensity. Not all music should be loud. Not every psalm says, shout to the Lord. And so you shouldn't shout everything you say. A preacher who shouts everything he says will soon be turned off in a hurry. So there's, there are crescendos in reality and at those moments, we ought to reach a crescendo and then back off. Otherwise, the crescendo uses loses all of its meaning. And the second thing is, besides appropriateness, is do we really believe? Well, let me ask you this question. We asked about three years ago as we were assessing who we were, we said, what do we want to be the defining sound on Sunday morning during the first half of the worship service. In those days, the issue was, do we buy a pipe organ? We do not have a pipe organ. We don't have an organ at all, though we have the most expensive synthesizer you can get, which sounds like one to me. (laughs) Should organ be the defining sound? Many churches, you'd say, what's the defining sound in the first? They'd say, big organ. You know what the answer of our church was? The congregation singing, which carries a very important implication for the worship band. Don't drown us out. Because the body of Christ lifting its voice in song is either what is smell as sweet aroma in heaven or not. Not the, the buttons being adjusted on these machines up here. That doesn't smell any particular way to God. But the authenticity and the energy and the reality coming out of those people's mouths and hearts, that smells good to God or not. So I think those two things, appropriateness and try to help them see we need your leadership. We need you. We're not putting you down. We need leadership. And you need to be heard. But if you drown us out... Something theologically amiss is happening in the room. Now, you you call right now with what happens
1: to these two fellows and...